Good evening. It's 5.34 p.m. on Friday, March 19th, 2021. We are going to listen to Renegades, born in the USA, former President Barack Obama with the legendary Bruce Springsteen, known as The Boss. Their recent Spotify podcast titled Number Five, Every Man for Himself. They talk about growing up broke and happy plus issues of class, opportunity, and what, what. Thank you for listening. It's about 48 minutes. This episode of Renegades is brought to you by Dollar Shave Club. Have you ever stood in front of the mirror, ready to shave, and felt stuck? Maybe you're thinking, am I using the right blade? Should I have exfoliated before this? Does this patchy hair on my face even qualify as a beard? At Dollar Shave Club, there are no bad, wrong, or weird questions. Only answers and acceptance. It's like having a best friend that lives in your bathroom, but not in a weird way. Dollar Shave Club, now at a store near you and still online at dollarshaveclub.com. This episode of Renegades is brought to you by Comcast. The COVID-19 crisis has made it difficult for many students to get online and access the tools they need to succeed. Over the last 10 years, Comcast has worked to advance digital equity and close the digital divide. Now they are working with both nonprofit partners and city leaders to create over 1,000 Wi-Fi connected lift zones in community centers nationwide to help address the homework gap. Because students and their families need safe spaces to get online and access the resources they need, even when school is closed. Learn more at Comcast.com slash education. Benjamin Franklin, who did pretty well for himself in his day, is quoted as saying that money never made a man happy yet nor will it. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, it makes one. Wise man, Mr. Franklin. Growing up in the 60s and early 70s, my family and Bruce's didn't have a lot and didn't expect a lot when it came to money. But we had enough. American society wasn't so stratified then. Life was still a struggle for a lot of people. And the doors of opportunity were too often closed for women and people of color. But thanks to strong unions and government investment, upward mobility wasn't a myth. Hard work didn't just deliver financial stability and the promise of a better life for your kids. It also provided people with a sense of dignity and self-worth. It's something that Bruce and I have both spent a lot of time thinking about. How the American economy changed how America became more unequal, and how, in the chase for the almighty dollar, we lost some of the values 
community, solidarity, and shared sacrifice that we are going to need to make us whole once again. Part of your story about the draft is you suddenly realize there's a class basis to this entire thing where how is it that the kids who are going to college don't have to go? And, and, and this is part of what separates World War II, that greatest generation, from the Vietnam generation, is suddenly that sense of, we are going to hook it up so that the privileged don't have to make sacrifices for bad decisions being made in Washington. Yeah. And I think there's a consciousness of that injustice that ends up disillusioning people as well at that age we just took that for granted yeah that hey we're not up there we're down here yeah (laughs) and we're playing by the rules of down here yeah you know and if we want if we don't want to go there are street prescriptions that you're going to have to follow to get out it's going to involve some crazy ass shit, you know, and uh, that was, you know, there was that nobody could afford the doctor's notes or the this right. or the that or, or getting back, getting into college. I barely got in the first time. I don't even remember feeling aggrieved by it at the yeah, time. Yeah, you, you don't feel some class resentment. No, no. You just be like, yeah, of course, the, the rich kids are going to have a different deal than I Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's, now, do you, but you, you don't think of that as raising questions about the whole myth of the American dream and upward mobility and anybody can make it. I think, you know, you, you lost your faith in, in life, liberty, and the pursuit of meaning for all. You lost your faith in that. And there was a little bit of, oh, it's, it's a little every man for himself, you know. The economic picture in Freehold in my childhood, 1950s, was a very, very different picture than the economic picture that runs across the country today. If you were middle class in Freehold, or if you were the wealthiest people in Freehold, there was a street you lived on. I remember it was called Brinkerhoff Avenue. It was the widest tree-lined street in town. And to, to find poverty, you had to really look for it. And it was there, usually in communities of color. But the difference of income equality felt so much less that it never, it, those ideas never entered your mind. I know my parents who lived hand to mouth. I mean, spent all the money they had this week until they had money next week and then spent all of I mean, literally, we all lived that way. We never thought of ourselves as struggling or we were clothed. We had food, you know, and uh, we had a roof over our heads, though our home was pretty funky, but, <laughs> <laughs> but 
it was it sat there in the midst of other homes and it wasn't that dramatically different it wasn't like you were ashamed of the house or you thought man i you know we need to get like you know fancier curtains or well i I, in our house we do i did have a little bit of that going (laughs) (laughs) because for some reason i live in one of the oldest houses in town and for some reason uh for some reason our house was it, it got pretty dilapidated you know but I, but even then, I didn't. I never thought of myself as as a poor kid. I lived in the middle of a middle class neighborhood. Part of what you're saying, though, is if you're growing up as a kid there, and you're looking around, you think, "All right, uh, I'm pretty much I'm on a, par with everybody." With Bobby else. Duncan down the street, or yes. with, with you know, yeah. and, and with maybe Richie his Blackwell dad over here. And, maybe his dad runs the bank. Uh, Whereas my dad, you know, works at the bank or works in the factory. Yeah. But I don't feel as if I am somehow on the outside looking in. You don't feel like you're a vi- you don't feel like you've been victimized or right. are a victim. You right. know? Uh, you're aware of some class differences, of course, but it, but it, it, it seems much less dramatically than people are aware of it today. But did, but did you have folks in the in the neighborhood, were there friends of yours or kids who said, man, you know, I'm getting out of here because I'm going to make a lot of money. You know, I'm, I'm going to get that new latest, you know, Chevy. And that's a sign, that's a marker uh, that I've made it. Just, just this notion that you needed to make a certain amount of money or have a certain amount of stuff because if not, and you were, you were a failure, or you're going backwards, or you hadn't been ambitious enough. Was there any of that kind of sensibility? In my experience, it's a much more modern phenomenon. Right. You know? I don't remember that being a huge, huge topics of conversation in high school, or uh, everybody wanted to make a living, and right. and uh, if you were going to do really well, you were going to go to college. Right. That was that that. That was a marker. Big marker. If you Huge went to college, you, that, that indicated something a it, little bit different. You were special. Mm-hmm. You know? But that changed dramatically in the United States in the 70s, certainly the 80s. Yeah. You, so, gilded age of the 80s. So, so, so we'll, we'll fast forward a little bit. And I'm in middle school and then high school in the 70s. And I see all this through the lens of my grandparents who I lived with most of the time. And they are Depression era, World War II era folks. Right, as my grandparents were. And we lived in an apartment in Honolulu, maybe 1,200 square feet. I remember as an adult going back to the apartment and just thinking, hey, you know, this is really modest. But at the time, I never, ever thought about, well, I, I don't have much. No. And I didn't consider the world foreclosed to me because I was not wealthy. Right. And my grandparents, they wanted me to go to college and, and 
sacrificed for me to go to a prep school that more or less assured unless I got kicked out for drinking <laughs> that I'd get to college. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm saying all this, you know, not, I mean, I yeah. know we, we sound like these old guys. You know, <laughs> it's you terrible. Know, man, I used to walk it's to so school bad. barefoot and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but so bad. Um, but, but I, I think you and I had the same sense that this shift took place is right around the 80s, yeah, early 80s, uh, right after Reagan gets elected. You know, he, he breaks the, the air traffic controllers union. You've got right. stagflation. Right. And you have the beginning of the kind of media that lifestyles of the rich and famous introduce, which brings the culture of materialism into everyone's home 24 hours a day and suddenly they're being told you are not good enough unless you have this this stuff this is right around the time that I moved to New York and New York was coming out of bankruptcy but Wall Street is surging right? and this is when the movie Wall Street comes out and greed right. is good Michael Douglas in the high collars mm -hmm. and, and, and the huge cell phone. Right? <laughs> the size of a backpack. We, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. Manhattan in 81, 82, 83 is this good perch to watch this shift in culture. It, it was sort of the epicenter of it. And as you said, it, it is suddenly in your face. Look, you you know, it's a little bit like uh, that uh, David Mamet play, uh, Glenn, Gary, Glenn yeah. Ross, where you got a bunch of salesmen. The guy says, uh, first place, uh, you get a Cadillac. Uh, second place, steak knives. Third place, you're fired. <laughs> right, right. There's right. there, there, suddenly it. that sense of, hey, the you know, there you are, you you are either going to win or you are going to lose in this capitalist game, and you don't want to be on the on on the backside of that thing. What I saw then in my peers, because I did go to college, the shift in terms of young people thinking if I don't get to Wall Street or a white shoe law firm to punch my ticket, then I could start slipping down the mm -hmm. scales. Let me give you a for instance. My kids are going to school. Nice little school across the street from my house. I go for the first day of parents' right. introduction. Uh, sit down, and the first thing is the headmaster gets up, and he says, now I don't want you parents worrying that when your child has his first day at Bear Stearns, <laughs> <laughs> this is the opening salvo. <laughs> My kid's only four. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. But that was, that was what was in the air. Yeah. You could you, you, you could you could feel it that anxiety, and when I told people that I was going to 
work as a community organizer. This the the the, the notion that <laughs> you know having graduated from this college that I would be taking an occupational path that nobody could really even understand what it was made no sense. Now, you know, this is all happening against the backdrop of manufacturing moving offshore, unions getting busted, CEOs in the 50s and 60s are making maybe 30 times what right. the average guy yeah. or gal on, on the assembly line are making. Now he's making 300 times. Right. So part of what happens is when suddenly in the 1980s, uh, you have a politics, you know, Ronald Reagan describing government being the problem. Let's cut taxes. Let's cut public services. It also means cutting public jobs, cutting union jobs. And that meant, you know, the combination of manufacturing going away and public sector jobs going away decimates the, the opportunity for black men in particular, but also black women to get work. And just as they're finally about post-civil rights movement, you know, cracking open the door to get right. some of these jobs that previously had been banned to them, the rug gets pulled out from under. Them. So there's a real shift in how capitalism operates and people's wages really are stagnating and the inequalities really are getting greater. So, so this and isn't just a change in mi- mindset. It's now getting reality. squashed. Yes. You know, they're getting squeezed. And so the question is, or one of the questions is, were the forties and fifties and somewhat sixties, just a break in between two gilded ages. And the answer is a lot of it's yes. All right. So I, wrote this in 1982, I guess, or 81. This is Atlantic City. Well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. Now they blew up his house, too. Down the boardwalk, they're getting ready for Hillwood fight. Wanna see what those racket boys can do. In the early and in the 80s, there's a dread in the air. Right. Really, maybe you can trace it back to the end of the Vietnam War. But there's a dread in the air and in the idea of the American dream that hadn't been present previously. Because I I wrote a very strange album in the early 80s called Nebraska. And it was this very quiet record that dealt with all of these issues at that moment, you know. Now, I'm writing about these things when I'm not that conscious about it, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm following what I'm feeling in the air. Right. Well, I got a job and tried to put my money away. But I got debts that no honest man can pay So I drew what I had from the Central Trust And I bought us two tickets 
on that Coast City bus. Well, now. And that was just what I started to do. And that and the combination of my father's life, my experiences in freehold, where I sort of saw what happens when there's some, there's some union problems and suddenly the factory's moving down south and everybody's unemployed. Sort of set, and, and the cost that, that, and the cost that was paid by the families in town and my own moved me in writing the direction that, that, that I became. And really, I, I, like I said, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't write it with any of with the idea of it being socially conscious or with any sort of awareness. I was just telling stories that I was feeling at the time, right. you know. We're going out where the sands turn into gold. Put on your stockings, baby, because the night's getting cold. Maybe everything dies, baby, that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies someday comes back. This episode of Renegades is brought to you by Comcast. Students from low-income families need access to the internet and computers to level the playing field. And for the last decade, Comcast has been helping students get ready. They've connected over 4 million students from low-income families to low-cost, high-speed Xfinity internet through Internet Essentials, the nation's largest, most comprehensive internet adoption program. They're working with hundreds. All right, so here's, 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 I guess, a question for both of us, which is we start off not thinking a lot about money, but thinking, in your case, about music and, and your art. And, and I'm deliberately saying I'm not taking that path. Now, that's a big choice to make coming out of the kinds of schools you came out of and right. given the opportunities right. that you would have had. How did you come to make that choice? You know, part part of it was, I think, because you know, my mom was a little bit of a free thinker. And, oh, you yeah, know, she had yeah, you're right. right. Wandered around and become an anthropologist and right. went into development work. You know, so I, I guess, you know, she was not all that practical to begin with and kind of romantic. And I'm sure she got put uh, a little bit of that into me, but part of it, it was a recognition that the American dream had never been fully available to black folks. When I thought about what I should aspire to, mm-hmm. it wasn't, man, let me be Jay Rockefeller. Right. It was, look at John Lewis. Right. Look at Dr. King. Look look at these folks who are out there trying to make the world right. better and open up opportunity for people. So, so partly because of my own need to figure out who I was as a right. black, American, that path looked to me like it was something 
necessary for me to do. My salvation was there. But that's a, that's an interesting word, salvation. Yeah, well, because it's it turns what you're doing into a redemptive exercise, right? And that's you know? what it was for me. Yeah, I find myself in Chicago working with folks who are going through these struggles and asking these questions, and and in a very concrete way, trying to figure out how am I working? How am I going to get my kid working? How am I going to get my kid into college, uh, or at least into a trade? What's happening to the value of my house? Right, they're they're going through this stuff, and I'm seeing it in concrete terms, and that does become redemptive for me because now my story merges with theirs, That's right. and the larger American story. And if I can if I can figure out how to help that community that I've now become a part of, and as it turned out, my wife, my future wife, grew up in, mm-hmm. maybe I can redeem a piece of America too, and make it my own. Right? That that becomes my mindset, and and so those are those. I mean, those are fundamentally my own motivations, and there's a deeper question of where that comes from because it's a response to something. We're trying to figure out how do we feel whole and make the world around us, yeah, feel whole. <laughs> right. Well put. But the interesting thing you know, is. Michelle, partly because she was very clear about who she was, loving parents, family, community. She doesn't feel like she needs to get redeemed. She feels like, I just need some money. (laughs) So so when I I meet her, you know, she is driving a Saab and she's Mm -hmm. joined a wine club and okay you know she from her perspective initially she punched her ticket Mm -hmm. and i i remember the first time you know she invites me to a party with a bunch of her you know friends and and there are all these young professionals i am very much the misfit you know because at the time i one of my responses to this era Mm -hmm. i guess i let this part out was I went in the opposite direction. Yeah. I was, it's I, had, I had like three shirts <laughs> and I had one plate and I lived in these scruffy looking <laughs> uh, apartments and all my furniture was, you know, scavenged from either the street mm. or milk crates. I knew that there, there lied temptation. Like if I went down the path of starting to want stuff Mm -hmm. that that was a hamster wheel you never got off of so i'm with all these young professionals they're looking all like uh you know like richard gear and american gigolo kind of that was a look you know (laughs) and uh and i walk in and my you know i got kind of a i had one sports jacket that didn't quite fit me right (laughs) that i'd gotten off uh you know some discount store ironically i do think it was part of my power as a politician, people could sense that Michelle and I had lived through and understood what it was like to have a whole bunch of student loans to pay, what it, what it was like to have some credit card debt, and what it was like to have to uh, say no to things. And, and it wasn't an act. 
right? Right. And I, I guess the, the question, you know, I'm, I'm interested in how you dealt with it, was you started off chasing music, but... I, I dealt with it very, very simply. But by the time you are, <laughs> what, 27, 28, 30... There, there, there comes a point. What, what's, the, what's the point where you suddenly, shit, I'm rich. Third, I would, <laughs> 32, 33. What happened is I signed so many bad deals that for 10 years after I recorded, I was pretty broke, you know. <laughs> but then several things happened. One, the live, in, the live concert industry began to become very uh, lucrative and... Uh, uh, we went out and we played a lot of shows, and I had finally paid off most of my my debts from all my st- stupid mistakes. And suddenly, I came home one day and 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 I said, "I'm rich." In the course of one tour, I went from I had twenty grand in the bank when I started. I'd spent all my money in 1980. That's almost ten years after I signed my record deal. That's what I had to my name. And I came home at the end of that tour with a lot more than that. And and I said, oh, my God, as far as I'm concerned, I'm rich. Second thought, I hate myself. <laughs> <laughs> because now, now I'm in a trap, you know, before, you know, I, I, and now, now, I'm there, now, I'm, now I'm there, you know. And, and so my first luxury was the luxury of ignoring my money. Uh, but I remember I bought one new thing. I bought a $10,000 Chevrolet Camaro. Every time I got in it, I felt like I was driving in a solid gold Rolls Royce, and I was embarrassed. You didn't feel good about it? No. You felt self-conscious about it? Very self-conscious. Well, the other thing is it, it runs contrary to your brand. Yeah. In terms of who you are thinking about as both your audience and your subject. Yeah, and who who I feel like, you know. So uh, I don't want to, I don't want to settle for that. I want that wholeness Mm -hmm. that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm after. Right. You know. Redemption. That's correct. (laughs) Salvation. So I was very, and I consider myself healthily, skeptical when i started to change station right you know even as this whole atmosphere because it just accelerates right i mean all through the 80s into the 90s boom 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 you know it is uh not only are you making more and more money but the temptations of how to spend your money become more and more lavish and your peers you know, folks in your musical stratosphere uh, are not quite as restrained in terms of how that money is being spent. Everybody's everybody has a different attitude about it, and I, I don't really, I don't, I don't, you know, really judge anybody on it. All I know is what I'm just wondering. I know, I know you, I'm not saying you judge. Yeah. Them. What I am saying though is, during this period, how, how are you? How are you? thinking to yourself how am I processing you know why, why, why am I not buying a, a huge mansion I am or... thinking that and I don't have the answer which is a 
big problem because I got to a place where I said, I want a home. A home is a part of that wholeness. Right. I can't find one. I can't get one. I can't buy one. Right? And I realized, oh, I, I get it. I get it. I get it. Uh, I can't buy one because I don't deserve one. You know? Uh, a car. Why do I feel bad in it? I don't deserve it. Why don't I have a partner and a home life and children and satisfactions of my own? Well, I don't deserve any of those. When I finally made some money, it forced me to interrogate myself about who I was. I, I, I was very conscious about remaining at least... I remained physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually a part of the community that I came from. That was really important to me. I stayed in New Jersey. I hung out in the same bars. I played in those same bars on the weekends when I could. You know, I had the same group of friends. And I probably took it to an extreme. But looking back on it, I'm would rather have taken those things to an extreme than gone the other way. I'm, I'm interested in the story that I want to tell. And I know that that story and my very self is inexplicably connected to the community, the people and the place that I came from. Right. And if I sever that connection, right. I've lost something and I've lost something essential. So I'm skeptical, moving forward very, very carefully and tiny steps by tiny steps until I, I remember I bought a, a house in, in, in the most exclusive community in this little part of New Jersey. And I felt terrible about it. <laughs> right? First night I'm in that house, I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> Have I lost my fucking mind? Am I like going crazy? What am I doing in this place? You know? But what I realized was looking back on it now, if you drove past the house, there's a nice lawn. And it's a nice sort of upscale middle class house. We raised our kids in it for thirty years. Right. But it's and, not the Hearst castle. No, it's not you know, and and, and right. so and I realized that part of it, it was a big house, but what did I hope to do? Fill it. Right. That was why I got it. I right. got it to fill, to fill with that wholeness that I was searching for, right. you know? You know, I know it's true for you, Bruce. I, it's certainly true for me that, you know, we're always questioning in this culture, am I losing touch? Am I falling prey? to this huge consumer engine that's being you know, fed to us every single day. Uh, am I forgetting what's important? And, and that requires you sometimes to step back and reflect and, and, and maybe um, get that perspective. You know, last year, my Christmas present to Michelle we were in Hawaii, and I arranged for us to have 
flashlight. It sounds good. It, it was a good setup. <laughs> Watch the sun go down. Um, I was quite pleased with myself. Oh, well done. The best part of the evening, right at the beginning, we started tracking all the places that we had stayed over the 20 years that we had been coming to Hawaii. Ah. Starting with the first when we slept on my grandparents' couch. <laughs> then the second time we got actually a motel room. It was like five miles from the beach. <laughs> and then we moved to a legit hotel that had a pool in the general vicinity of the beach. Then we went to like a, a Sheraton, you know, and, 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 you know, this is over the course of 10 years. You're getting and then, that. Right? And, and, <laughs> and then there was a place, you know, with the girls and there was a separate room. It was sort of like a, a junior suite, I think is what they called it. Yeah. So that you could close the door and the kids outside so that it was possible to have a little nice. bit of privacy yes, on your nice. vacation with your <laughs> spouse. Um, you could track sort of our economic status, right, over the years. Okay. Through our vacations. You could almost see every place we had stayed. But the pleasure of it was reminding ourselves that we were just as happy in each of those places. The constant was our time together. And the setting really had not made any difference. Mm -hmm. It had, you know, initially there had been a little burst of excitement. Oh man, you see the, you got the little shampoos in the, in the bathroom and, you know, <laughs> then you go to a place where it actually has like a rope, you know, like, man, try on the rope. rope. This is something, right? After that initial moment, it was still the sunset that mattered and you holding hands. It was still the sound of the girls laughing as they were running after each other in the sand. It was the free stuff that had nothing to do with the places you were staying in. Those are the elements of joy. That was what made you whole. Yeah. Right? And, and I think communicating that as part of our politics, our stories, our songs, reminding ourselves of that, is how you then get to the point where you can build a coalition to actually change the policies. This episode of Renegades is brought to you by Dollar Shave Club. Grooming as a man is full. Here we go. This is Used Cars. Used Cars was a song. It probably captured the feeling of my family life, my childhood, and my neighborhood as good as anything that I've ever wrote. The threadbareness of a lot of our lives. Uh, because all I remember was when, when my dad drove in that driveway with that new used car. <laughs> it may have been a friggin' Lincoln Continental, brand new off the show floor, was how excited we got. And looking back on it now, you know, 
I guess there's a there's a happiness and a sadness to it. But anyway, this is used cars. My little sister is in the front seat with an ice cream cone. Ma's in the back seat sitting all alone. As my pa steers her slow out of the lot for a test drive down Michigan Avenue. Now my ma, she fingers her wedded band. Watch as a salesman stare at my old man's hands. She's telling us all about the break he'd give us if he could, but he just can't. But if I could, I swear, I know just what I'd do. Mr. Day, a lot of me I went, I ain't ever gonna ride no used car again. Now the neighbor come from near and far as we pull up in our brand new used car I wish he'd just hit the gas and let out a cry tell them all in this kiss our asses goodbye <laughs> Mr. Day a lot of you when I ain't ever gonna there is the very real economic inequalities that have arisen that have to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And if we don't fix those, the country's going to fall apart. Well, be, be, because when folks lose that sense of place and status, when suddenly steady work alone isn't enough for you to support your family or to be respected, when you have chronic insecurity though there's a bunch of policy stuff that has to be fixed but the policy fixes are going to come in part because the country starts telling a different story about what's important that shift that we were talking about in the 80s uh, the greed is good that never really went away no it accelerated and you know um, the argument between you know conservatives and liberals left and right a lot of times the argument had to do with how much redistribution you know how much taxes there should be uh, but never really got to some of the core issues about why is it that we're measuring ourselves just with how much stuff we get? And is there a way for us to, to think about that differently? Because if, if we're thinking about it differently, then now it becomes easier for those who have a lot to maybe give some up <laughs> in order to make sure that those who have a little have That's right. enough. You know, I, I think that there's been this rush of information of a certain life distorted, life distorting information. Right. All right. And it's not going away ever. So it's going to call on people for both, as I said, have interpretive abilities 
that possibly generations before us did not need to have. But they're going to have to make decisions about what's valuable, and I guess, what's truly, deeply valuable. And, and, and I guess that's that, that's the point I'm, I'm trying to get at, is there, there's a story, a collective story we tell about what do we value. There and, it is. And uh, part of what I tried to do in my political career, part of what I'm trying to do post-politics is tell a story that is counter to the story that has been told that says the American dream is defined by you ending up on top of that pyramid that's getting steeper and steeper. And uh, the more people below you, the better off you are because and, and this sounds... And that's become the prime story where I don't believe that was the prime story 40 or 50 years ago. Exactly. Our expectations and tastes in terms of what it means to have made it have shifted. Um, and then obviously it's in our politics, right? Uh, which is how you get somebody like a Donald Trump elected because he represents in the minds of a lot of folks Success. Success. I guess right? yeah. you, you, you everything's gold plated. You got you got the big plane with the big name and you got the buildings with your name on it and and, and you know you're going around firing people and th- that must be and, and particularly for men, that is a sign that you have succeeded, right? And and one of the things I never understood is why People would want an individual success at the exclusion of other people. You know, there's entire communities that are premised on living behind a gate, cut off from the larger community, isolated, maybe resented by neighbors. And and that just always felt lonely to me, felt empty. You know, it's, it's like uh, Citizen Kane sort of rattling around in his big mansion, you know, muttering about Rosebud. But that is the attitude of so many in power. That That's the model of success. That is the end point of the culture that we so often promote. The good news is it's actually a place where I think you can see a convergence, a potential convergence among the religious impulses that are in the church and, you know, are oftentimes thought of as conservative mm-hmm. and the, the, the spiritual impulses of a lot of young progressives who say, look, you know, I want to preserve the planet. I believe in sustainability. I believe in equality. Um, it, it, you know, there is a spiritual dimension to our politics and how we define success and uh, our connection to each other and status in our society that is, is out there waiting to be tapped and, and, and and that's, I think, a big part of the work that we've got to do to, to, to make America feel whole again.
Renegades Born in the USA is a Spotify original, presented and produced by Higher Ground Audio, in collaboration with Dustlight Productions. From Higher Ground Audio, Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Joe Paulson are executive producers. Carolyn Lipka and Adam Sachs are consulting producers. Janae Marable is our editorial assistant. From Dustlight Productions, Misha Youssef and Arwin Nix are executive producers. Elizabeth Nakano, Mary Knopf, and Tamika Adams are producers. Mary Knopf is also editor. Andrew Epen is our composer and mix engineer. Rainier Harris is our apprentice. Transcriptions by David Rodriguez. Special thanks to Rachel Garcia, the Dustlight Development and Operations Coordinator. Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, and Courtney Holt are executive producers for Spotify. Gimlet and Lydia Polgreen are consulting producers. Music supervision by Search Party Music. From the great state of New Jersey, special thanks to John Landau, Tom Zimney, Rob LeBret, Rob DeMartin, and Barbara Carr. We also want to thank Adrian Gerard, Marilyn Laverty, Tracy Nurse, Greg Lynn, and Betsy Whitney. And a special thanks to Patty Scalfa for her encouragement and inspiration. And to Evan, Jess, and Sam Springsteen. From the District of Columbia, thanks to Christina Shockey, Mackenzie Smith, Katie Hill, Eric Schultz, Caroline Adler-Morales, Marone Heli-Mescal, Alex Platkin, Kristen Bartoloni, and Cody Keenan. And a special thanks to Michelle, Malia, and Sasha Obama. This is Renegades, born in the USA. <laughs>